Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Well, it's that time of year again, Christmas time of year. It's December of 2016. Christmas trees are going up. Christmas lights are being hung. And here at Radio Free Mormon, in honor of the season, we will be taking a deep but very brief dive into the New Testament story of the birth of Jesus Christ. Perhaps more specifically, I should say, the New Testament stories of the birth of Jesus Christ. By way of background, what I'll be talking about tonight is not something that I'm making up out of my head. Some of the things I say may be new to you, but I assure you that what I'll be talking about represents the consensus of the vast majority of New Testament scholars today. And not just today, but really, they've known about this stuff for around 200 years. It's just we don't talk about this very much in church, so it may sound new to some of you. Let's talk briefly about the four Gospels that we have in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Scholars are agreed that the first of these is Mark. Mark was probably written around 65 A.D. And when we talk about the Gospel of Mark, it's also important to note that we're only calling it the Gospel of Mark because that is the title that has become associated with this Gospel. The original manuscripts do not have any titles associated with them. If you look at the earliest manuscript of the Gospel of Mark, it doesn't start off by having a title saying, this is the Gospel of Mark. Instead, it just starts with a text. These titles, not only for Mark, but also for Matthew, Luke, and John, were not in the original manuscripts, but they became added later, because obviously people knew that someone had written these, and the names were supplied through tradition and through agreement. The names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have little to nothing to do with who it was who actually wrote these Gospels. If you look at the text of the Gospels, there is nothing in them to indicate who wrote them. It's not like the Book of Mormon that starts off with I, Nephi, being born of goodly parents. We know Nephi wrote it, or at least a person named Nephi is claiming to write it, because the text says so. In the Gospels in the New Testament, there are no such indicators. There's no such beginning as I, Mark, being born of goodly parents, wrote this gospel, or I, Luke, being born of goodly parents, wrote this gospel. Except for the title, we would have no idea who it is who wrote any of the four gospels in the New Testament. And when we understand that there were no titles in the original manuscripts, then it leaves us with four gospels that are basically anonymous in nature. This understanding can help us to resolve the curious situation with the Gospel of John, where it appears that John wrote it because the title says the Gospel of John, and yet John, writing it, refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That seems odd. It seems a bit egotistical, and it strikes many people as unusual. But when we understand that the disciple, known as John, almost certainly did not write the Gospel of John, then it helps us to understand that maybe he wasn't such an egomaniac after all. Scholars also pretty much understand the order in which the Gospels were written. They give primacy to Mark. Mark is generally agreed to be the first Gospel written of the Gospels that we have in the New Testament. It was probably written around 65 AD. Matthew and Luke coming next around the same time, though probably in different locations that they were written, but around the same time, around 75 AD, and John being much later, perhaps around 90 to 95 A.D. The first three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Synoptic is a word that means one view or one eye. 
The reason they're called the Synoptic Gospels is because they basically follow the same narrative in telling the story of Jesus Christ. And there's a reason for that, which we'll get to in a minute. But they basically tell the same story. Now, there's a lot of differences between them. There's even contradictions between them. There's a lot of stories that one gospel will have that another gospel does not have. But it's basically the same story. So these are called the Synoptic Gospels. The Gospel of John, however, is not a Synoptic Gospel. It is an outlier. It's completely different from the other three Gospels. And let me give you an example of one way in which the Gospel of John is very different from the other three Gospels. If we read the Synoptic Gospels, we know that Jesus taught by parables. It was his preferred method of teaching. There are many parables that are recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. And the Synoptic Gospels even go so far as to tell us that Jesus never taught in any way other than by parables. So that's in the Synoptic Gospels. When we get to the Gospel of John, guess what Jesus never uses to teach anything? Parables. There is not one parable in the Gospel of John. It's a very different Jesus being portrayed. He's not telling parables. Instead, he's making self-declarations of his divinity. This is the gospel, the gospel of John, in which he makes all the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the life of the world. Not one parable. So you can see that this is one example of how the gospel of John is not a synoptic gospel and how the other three fit more comfortably in the same category. It's like the old Sesame Street song, one of these things doesn't belong here, and the thing that doesn't belong here is the Gospel of John. So having said that much, let's go to the birth accounts that are contained in two of the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew and Luke. Growing up in a Christian country where Christmas is celebrated every year, we generally have an idea, whether we're Christian or not, as to what the Christmas story is about. It's about the birth of Jesus. It's about the manger. It's about the star. It's about the shepherds. It's about the angels appearing to the shepherds. And it's about the wise men showing up with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's what the Christmas story is about. And of course, we all know that it happens in Bethlehem. When we look at the two gospel accounts, however, what we find out is that really that whole story that we have in our mind is a mishmash and a combination of both the story in Luke and the story in Matthew. These details that they have are very different between the two stories. The main part of the story that both Gospels agree on is that first off it happens in Bethlehem, second off there is Mary and Joseph, and then there is a miracle that occurs and a virgin conceives, that's Mary, and she gives birth to the Messiah, the Christ child, who is Jesus. That's the one part of the story that they both agree on. When it comes to all the other details, most people are surprised to find out that those details are not shared between Matthew and Luke. In fact, the most famous details are told only in one gospel, and then the other famous details are told only in the other gospel. Briefly put, it is in Luke that we have the shepherds out in their fields by night. And an angel appears to them and tells them to go into Bethlehem, into the city of David. They'll find the Savior wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And then there's a whole bunch of angels, the heavenly host, and singing glory, hallelujah, on earth, peace, goodwill to men. That's in Luke. There is no mention in Luke, however, of wise men showing up with their three presents. There's no mention in Luke as well of a star. You have angels in Luke but not a star. To get to the wise men and the star, you have to go to Matthew. Matthew has wise men showing up with the gifts of frankincense, gold, and myrrh. They have the star that appears in the sky that the wise men follow in order to find Jesus. But in Matthew, there are no shepherds. 
and there are no angels singing. So what we do is we typically combine all those together when it comes Christmas time, and we think of all of that as the Christmas story. But those are details that are completely different between the two accounts. So let me go ahead and start reading from Luke. We'll start with Luke because for some reason when the Christmas story is read, we think of Luke. Maybe that's because of Charlie Brown's Christmas and what Linus recites. He's reciting from Luke when he's up there on the stage toward the end of the show. But Luke is usually what we think of when we think of the Christmas story. I'm going to read through this very quickly, so follow along if you want. It starts in chapter 2 in Luke. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Okay, a couple of comments here. There is no historical basis for any kind of a worldwide census under Caesar Augustus or anyone else for that matter. This is something that appears only in Luke. And when we get to Quirinius in verse 2 where it says the census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. This is problematic because even though we don't have a lot of documents about early Christianity to know dates regarding Christ and when he was born, the Romans did keep pretty good documents. And we have a number of those documents. And the first thing that we know about Quirinius is that he did exist. He was a governor of Syria, but he was not governor of Syria until 6 AD. That means that if this is correct, Jesus was actually not born until after 6 AD. So it's unlikely that that is an historically accurate statement, that a census took place, which ends up getting Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem for Jesus to be born, that it took place under Quirinius, who only began to be governor 6 AD. The problem this creates is that Herod dies 3 or 4 BC. Quirinius does not become governor until 6 AD. That is a 9 to 10 year swing. According to Matthew, Herod is alive when Jesus is born. And according to Luke, Quirinius is governor of Syria when Jesus is born. So when you know the history and the dates involved as far as Herod and Quirinius, it makes it a very difficult thing to reconcile these two accounts. To use a modern example, it's as if a historian said that one person was born while George W. Bush was president and another historian says that the same person was born after Obama was president. One can be true, the other can be true, but they can't be both true together. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city, verse 3. Now this makes it not only unlikely, but probably impossible. What does that mean when you go to your own city to be registered for the census? If you had to go to your own city, the city of your fathers, where would you go? What does that really mean? Verse 4 says, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Well, David lived a thousand years before Joseph. Are we to think that every person who lived at this time had to go to the city of their fathers who lived a thousand years before them? This makes it even more unlikely that this is an accurate statement of what happened. Rather, it's a means of the author to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem so Jesus can be born there. We'll talk about that here in a second. So Joseph goes to Bethlehem because he was a, of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in a swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. 
Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. This is not the King James Version, by the way. This is the New King James Version, so it's new and improved. It may not look exactly the same if you're following along in your King James Version. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign. To you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, good will toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. That's the end of the birth narrative in Luke. There are no wise men. There is no star. There is a census that gets Mary and Joseph from Nazareth, which is their hometown, to Bethlehem briefly to be counted. Now, let's go to Matthew and read the birth narrative there. That begins in chapter 1, verse 18, which I will once again read very quickly and make a few comments as I go. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. You see all these details that are in Matthew that are not in Luke? But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Matthew has a lot of angels appearing to Joseph at different times, which you will see. Luke has the angels appearing to Mary, but not so much to Joseph. Here, angels appear to Joseph. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now let's take a brief detour from from this point. Notice that in Matthew it is very important to him to show that almost every important event in Jesus Christ's life was prophesied by somebody in the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and he uses the Old Testament prophecies to prove that Jesus really is the Messiah because he's fulfilling those prophecies. If we go, however, to the place that that prophecy comes from, which is Isaiah chapter 7, we can find that prophecy in verse 14, which says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, spoiler alert, this prophecy in Isaiah has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Matthew is famous for twisting and torturing Old Testament prophecies in order to make them prophesy of Jesus, even when it's clear that when you read the Old Testament prophecy in context, it can have nothing to do with Jesus. And in fact, this is one of those examples. Let me give you a brief background on what's happening in Isaiah at this time. What is happening is that Isaiah is a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. There is a northern kingdom at this time. They have split by this point. It's around 721 BC. And the northern kingdom is called Israel. To make it a little more confusing, it can also be called 
Ephraim, but that's the northern kingdom of the Jews. That's the ten tribes who are up there in the northern kingdom who will later famously become lost. And what's happening at this point is that Judah and Ephraim, or Judah and Israel, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, are going to war. It looks like war is on the horizon, and to make things even worse, the northern kingdom, Israel, has joined an alliance with Syria. Now, this is not Assyria, which is the huge empire which exists at the time, but Syria, which is a much smaller country that is close up there and borders Israel on the north. So what Judah is looking at is not just a fight against the northern kingdom of Israel, but a fight against the northern kingdoms of Israel and Syria. So this is the situation, and the king of Judah is Ahaz. Isaiah is the prophet to the king. So now that I've explained that, perhaps this language in chapter 7 leading up to this prophecy, which is not about Jesus, will make more sense. So starting in verse 10, chapter 7, Isaiah, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, the king, saying, Ask a sign for yourself. From the Lord your God, ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? This is Isaiah speaking to the king. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is Isaiah speaking to King Ahaz, 721 B.C., approximately. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Notice verse 16. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The land that he dreads is Israel and Syria, and that's why it will be forsaken by both her kings. This is before the child who is prophesied will be old enough to even refuse the evil and choose the good. So this child who is prophesied will be born, but he won't be very old at all before the northern kingdom of Israel is destroyed and Syria is also destroyed, which ends up happening by the Assyrian conquest and invasion that happens around 722 or 721 BC. That's why I've been saying those dates. What that means, of course, is that because this prophecy is referring to a child who will only be three, four years old at the most by the time Assyria invades and destroys Israel and Syria in 721 BC, it cannot possibly have any reference to Jesus Christ. Going on in chapter 8, if you want to skip over to chapter 8 of Isaiah, we actually find out who this child is. It's not a mystery. It's Isaiah's child, starting in verse 1. Moreover, the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz. It's a great name. It is the name of Isaiah's son. And I will take for myself faithful witness to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Then I went to the prophetess. This is Isaiah speaking. Then I went to the prophetess. This is the virgin who's going to conceive. Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son, then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahershalal Hashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My mother and my father, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. That is a parallel prophecy to what happens in chapter 7, verse 16, about before the child shall know to choose good and evil. The land that you fear will be forsaken by both her kings. 
So, for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, verse 4 of chapter 8, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. The only thing that makes this more difficult to understand is that Damascus is the capital of Syria. So when he says the riches of Damascus, he's talking about Syria. And the spoil of Samaria, Samaria being another name for Israel, the northern kingdom, which can also be called Ephraim, which can also be called Samaria. So he's still talking about the same two kingdoms just by different names. And what he's making clear is that child will not even be old enough to cry my father and my mother before those kingdoms will be destroyed. So chapter 8 of Isaiah contains the fulfillment of the prophecy in chapter 7 about, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Then the question arises, Well, what about this prophetess that Isaiah went to? It's his wife. She couldn't be a virgin, could she? This must refer to something else. No, actually it doesn't. The original word in the Hebrew in Isaiah 7:14 is not virgin. It is young woman. That's what it means. It has nothing to do with whether she has ever known a man before or engaged in sexual relations with a man before. It's simply a young woman. So that's a good example of how it is that Matthew will use any prophecy that he possibly can from the Old Testament in order to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, even when the prophecy from the Old Testament can have nothing to do with Jesus. It doesn't seem to stop Matthew, and it hasn't stopped 2,000 years of Christians, including Handel, from using that prophecy in terms of Jesus. Going on, we're back in Matthew now, chapter 1, verse 24. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, this becomes an interesting problem, too. Not so much a problem, but a way to understand maybe a little bit more history. Like I say, we don't know anything about when Jesus was born as far as dates go, but we do know a lot about Roman rulers and those who ruled under the Romans. We know about Herod the Great, and we know that he ended up dying 3 B. C. So, if Jesus was born while Herod was alive, Jesus had to be born at least three years before Christ. I know that sounds funny, but most scholars will put Jesus' birth somewhere between three to five or six years before Christ. Going back to chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. See, here's the wise men. They show up in Matthew, not in Luke, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So here's the introduction of the star. A little comment about stars. I know that there's been all sorts of attempts to figure out what kind of conjoining of planets or what kind of comet or what kind of meteor could possibly have been this star that the wise men said they saw. I'm not sure that there necessarily was one, but within the ancient world, you remember that Abraham was promised that his seed would be as the stars of heaven. Well, there are an awful lot of stars up in the heaven, and there's an awful lot of people here on earth. And every now and then there is a shooting star. A star falls to earth. And even today we understand sometimes in some circles we'll hear the old wives' tale that a falling star means death. The reason behind that goes back quite a ways, and it comes from the belief that for every person who exists on the earth, they have a star in the heavens. And that star comes into existence when that person is born, and when that person dies, that star falls from heaven. The more important a person is, the brighter the star that appears. And therefore, for a very important person like a king, or a king of the Jews, or a messiah, there would be expected a very bright star 
to appear in the heavens in order to signal his birth. And this appears to be what the wise men are referencing, saying, this is chapter 2, verse 2, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Of course he's troubled. Herod's the king. And here come these wise men from the east saying that they are here to worship the real king of the Jews? Uh Uh-uh. That's not happening from his point of view. And when he, Herod, had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. Okay, now that's an introduction. Matthew is once again in quote from another prophecy from the Old Testament. This one's from Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. And this is a famous prophecy in the Old Testament, which many people understood to mean that this is where the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And this is the prophecy which he quotes in verse 6. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Matthew once again quotes from the Old Testament a prophecy in order to prove that Jesus indeed is the Messiah because he is born in Bethlehem. Herod asks them, where is Jesus to be born? They say, well, it's in Bethlehem. It says so right here, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. This is going to be very important later on because he's got to figure out what time the star appears because when the star appears means that's when Jesus is born. And what we're going to find out later is that what the wise men told him is that the star appeared two years ago and they have been getting their stuff together and traveling and en route and it took them two years from the time the star appeared in order to arrive in Jerusalem and talk to King Herod. Verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. Now this is a very unusual star. This is not just a star that appears in the heaven, apparently, but it has magical properties. And in fact, it's going to lead them to the house. Because a star in the heaven, way up there in the firmament, is not going to be able to give you directions to the exact location where you have to go. This star does. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, notice this. They're not going to a manger. They're not going to a stable. They're not going to a cave. They're going to a house. This is where Mary and Joseph and Jesus live in a house in Bethlehem. This becomes interesting. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. Okay, so here's a second angel appearing to Joseph, or maybe the same angel appearing a second time, to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I call called my son. So once again, Matthew quoting a prophecy in the Old Testament in order to prove that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And the prophecy is a very short one. It says, out of Egypt, I called my son. So this is another time that Matthew quotes a prophecy from the Old Testament. It's really not even a prophecy. If you notice, it's not talking about something that will happen in the future. Out of Egypt, I called 
past tense. I called my son. What he's quoting from now is the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Thinking about this, this can have nothing to do with Jesus. What this is talking about is when Israel, the children of Israel, were in Egypt and they were called out and led out under the hand of Moses. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, obviously speaking poetically, but still clearly past tense. It goes on in verse 2 of Hosea chapter 11. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. And it goes on and talks more in a poetic language, but it's clearly past tense, talking about the children of Israel being brought out of Egypt under the hand of Moses. And this is important for Matthew because Matthew specifically structures his narrative in order to present Jesus as a second Moses. He has Jesus taken into Egypt specifically so that he can come out of Egypt and back to the promised land, thereby portraying the same thing that Moses did. He will do that a little bit more later, which I'll talk about when we get to it. So for the third time now, we have Matthew citing scriptures and prophecies in the Old Testament and applying them to Jesus when it's clear from the context they don't have anything to do with Jesus. But this is what Matthew does. Verse 16 going on. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under. Okay, now this is the key. Two years old and under. So what did the wise men tell Herod as to when the star appeared? We find out here. From two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. That's the key. So we know that when he asked the wise men when it was the star appeared, they told him two years before. And that is why Herod goes to Bethlehem, has all the male children, two years and under, slaughtered, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Herod's pretty smart. If you're not going to tell me exactly which child, I'm going to cover all my bases. I'm going to hedge my bets, and I'm just going to kill all the male children, two years old and younger, so that there's no question but that I get the right one. And this child who was born, King of the Jews, the Messiah, is not going to live any longer to challenge my reign, not going to challenge my rulership. So finishing this very quickly, I won't read every single part from here on out, but I will say in verse 19, now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. That's the third time he gets an angel appearing to him, saying, arise, take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. That is the end of the birth narrative in Matthew. So they have, between the two different birth narratives in Matthew and Luke, they have different elements. Matthew has the wise men, Matthew has the star, Luke has the shepherds, and the angels appearing to the shepherds. And it seems that both authors are completely unaware of the elements that the other author uses. Matthew shows no awareness of shepherds and angels appearing, and Luke shows no awareness of wise men and a star appearing. So it looks like both Matthew and Luke are aware of different traditions or have different writings that they are looking at that the other does not have or is not aware of. It is possible, of course, that that's not a contradiction and that both of them could occur. Where it becomes much more difficult, though, is the heart of the story. 
which is where Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Because there we have a lot more difficulty making the two stories line up. Let's recap. Luke has Mary and Joseph living in Nazareth. Nazareth is their hometown. The only reason they go to Bethlehem is because of the census, which probably never happened. But it is the means by which Luke gets Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem so Jesus can be born there and fulfill the messianic prophecy that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. They are there only temporarily. They don't live in Bethlehem in Luke. They just go there because of the census. There's no room for them in the inn. They go to a stable. Jesus is born in the manger. The shepherds come. After Jesus is born, chapter 2 of Luke goes on to say that they went to the temple. They have an encounter with Anna. They have an encounter with Simeon. And after that, they go home to Nazareth. So they are there in Bethlehem for less than eight days because it's on the eighth day that they go north about five miles to Jerusalem to have Jesus circumcised at the temple. It's a very brief period of time that they are in Bethlehem. In Matthew, however, they live in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is their hometown. When the wise men show up, they don't show up the night that Jesus is born. They show up two years later and Mary and Joseph and Jesus are there still in Bethlehem. This seems to be a complete contradiction from what we have in Luke. And in Matthew, when the wise men show up, they don't show up at a stable. They don't see Jesus in a manger. The language is, when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. So in Matthew, Bethlehem is Jesus' hometown and he has to skedaddle to Egypt in order to avoid getting killed by Herod when he sends in his men to kill all the kids in Bethlehem. And then from Egypt, after Herod dies, he is brought back to Israel, and that's when they settle in Nazareth. The common theme between the two Gospels of Matthew and Luke is that Jesus has to be born in Bethlehem. Now, they will get him there by one way or another, and one is his hometown, and the other is a census that brings his parents there for him to be born. But the critical thing is for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. The reason why is because of the Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. What seems to be happening is that Jesus was from Nazareth. Everybody knew he was from Nazareth. And frankly, he was probably born in Nazareth. This is one of the dings against him, if you'll recall in the Gospels, that people are saying, you're coming from Nazareth. Whoever heard of the Messiah being born in Nazareth? But Matthew and Luke take care of that problem by constructing a narrative by which Jesus is born in Bethlehem so he can be the true Messiah. But they do it in completely different ways which makes one think that maybe what they're doing is a little more creative writing than just accurately reporting history. So what we have here is an instance in which it appears that the gospel writers have been trying to construct the narrative of Jesus so that it will match Old Testament prophecies. And here, as an example, I mentioned how Matthew constructs his gospel so that Jesus can be seen fulfilling the role of Moses, and he does this in a number of ways. We mentioned the fact that he has him go to Egypt so that he can come back to the promised land from Egypt, like Moses did when he led the children of Israel out of Egypt. It is Matthew that also has the slaughter of innocents story, and that's E-N-T-S, the slaughter of the innocents, the innocent babies. In chapter 1 of the book of Exodus, Pharaoh sees that the Israelites are becoming too numerous. He wants the help of the midwives to kill the male children. They refuse to help. And so what he does in verse 22 of chapter 1, So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So he kills the male children. This is what Matthew has Herod doing, 
with his story of the birth of Jesus. This is another way in which Matthew constructs his story so that the reader can see that Jesus is following in the footsteps of Moses. He is a second Moses. He is a second lawgiver. So first, he has him come out of Egypt. Second, he has the slaughter of the innocents that occurs with Jesus' birth. He will also have Jesus go into the wilderness in chapter 4, like Moses did. And how long does Matthew have Jesus in the wilderness? Interestingly, 40 days and 40 nights. That's chapter 4, verse 2. So even as Moses and the children of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years, Matthew has Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. And then immediately after that, he has Jesus go up onto a mountain and deliver the law. Just like Moses went up to Mount Sinai and came down with the law, he has Jesus go up on a mountain. Chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. And as if to make it clear beyond dispute, there are several places in the Sermon on the Mount, which are called the antitheses, where Jesus says, Moses said this to you, but I say this. Moses said this to you, but I'm telling you this. And Moses said this to you, but I'm telling you this. So it's very clear that Matthew is painting Jesus as a second Moses and constructs his narrative in order to make him a second Moses. And at the same time, Matthew is taking Old Testament passages and prophecies and using them in order to prove that Jesus is the expected Messiah because he is fulfilling all of these Old Testament prophecies. In the same way that Matthew is constructing his narrative to show that Jesus is fulfilling Bible prophecies about the Messiah, it's almost certain that he is having Jesus born in Bethlehem in order to do the same thing, and that Luke is doing a similar thing, except by a different means. Another of the things that everybody knows about Jesus, in addition to his being born in Bethlehem, is that he is the son of David. He is a descendant of David. His dad, Joseph, is a descendant of David. It is very important for Matthew and for Luke to prove and to show that Jesus is a descendant of David. Both Luke and Matthew not only have birth narratives, they also have genealogies to show that Jesus is a direct descendant of David. Now, those genealogies are not identical. In some places, they are different. The purpose of the genealogy is to show that Jesus does go back to David. He is the son of David, and that is to fulfill the Bible prophecy and the Jewish expectation that the Messiah, when he came, would be a direct descendant of David. This became necessary because there is an earlier Bible prophecy that when David took the throne, that he would reign or someone from his house would reign upon the throne in Israel forever. Well, that came to a pretty sudden end in 600 BC when the Babylonians came in and destroyed Judah and took people captive away back into Babylon. The kingship under David was destroyed and in the ashes of that came forth the tradition and the prophecy that a new king would arrive. He would be a military force a political king anointed by God and he would take over the throne of David once more and would rule forever in order to fulfill that prophecy which had kind of been abrogated at least temporarily by Babylon. So that's why the Messiah will be a son of David. It was critical that he be a son of David and it's obvious that both Matthew and Mark see it as critical that he be a son of David. Now we get to the rest of the story because it seems that the Bible itself suggests that Jesus was not a son of David. And you say, how can you possibly say that when you've already talked about how many times it's mentioned that he's a son of David and there are two genealogies that say that Jesus is the son of David? Well, this comes up a couple of years ago when I'm reading through the New Testament. 
there has always been a passage in the New Testament that I have never understood. It has to do with the saying of Jesus that comes up in Mark. Remember, Mark is the first gospel written. It is a place where Jesus quotes from Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. And that quote is this. It's a very famous quote. I'm sure you've heard it. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. Remember that the Messiah is going to be one who lays waste the enemies of the Lord and makes the enemies his footstool. So when it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool, it is almost certainly the first Lord who is the Messiah and saying unto the Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. He is going to prepare the way. So that is a messianic psalm. And the interesting thing and the confusing thing is the way that Jesus uses it in Mark chapter 12. Here's the story. It's Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. And Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? This is a strange question for Jesus to be asking. He's saying, why is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Wouldn't Jesus be embracing this since he is the son of David and he has his own pedigree and his own genealogy to prove it? No. Instead, he challenges this idea. He says, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? And now he quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1. For David himself said, understanding that the Psalms are attributed to David, David is supposed to be the author, and so he says, For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, quote, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. End quote. Jesus continues in verse 37. David, therefore, himself calleth him Lord. Who is David calling Lord? The Messiah. The Christ. David therefore himself calleth him Lord. And whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Let me go to a little bit more modern interpretation so you can understand that a little bit better. What Jesus is doing is he is challenging the idea that Christ has to be a son of David. And he's doing it by quoting Psalm 110. In Psalm 110.1, written by David, he's referring to the Messiah as the Lord. And Jesus' point is, why is David referring to the Messiah as his Lord if the Messiah is actually his son? So here's that newer translation. Then Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. So here we have Jesus very clearly discounting the idea that the Christ is going to be the son of David. Why would Jesus be doing that? If Jesus is the son of David, and if the earliest Christians knew that Jesus was the son of David, remember this saying occurs in Mark, the earliest gospel, which has no birth narrative and has no genealogy of Jesus tracing him back to David. What it appears is that Jesus, the original Jesus, the authentic Jesus, the Jesus who's really talking to people, knows he is not a descendant of David or at least has no way of proving that he's a descendant of David, and is being challenged on the fact that he is not a son of David by the scribes. And therefore, Jesus, instead of saying, well, I am a descendant of David, so there, says, it doesn't make any difference if the Christ is a descendant of David. Because David himself, in Psalm 110.1, calls the Christ Lord. And if David calls the Christ Lord, how is he then his son? 
I'll read it one more time. King James Version. And Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? This is Mark 12:35. For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord. And whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Of course the common people heard him gladly. The common people are not royalty. They're not descendants of David. You bet they heard him gladly. So, the reason I bring this up is because just as the authors of Luke and Matthew write that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, because it's important that he be born in Bethlehem in order to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy and expectation that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem, even so it appears that Matthew and Luke make Jesus a son of David by providing genealogies, complete genealogies proving that Jesus goes back to David because it's important to them to prove that Jesus be a son of David in order to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies and expectations that the Christ would be a son of David, even though it appears in the first instance that Jesus himself argues that he is not a son of David and it is not important for the Christ to be a son of David. That's about all for tonight. Until next time... This is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.